linguistic Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And uh, first off, I want to apologize for being away so long. It wasn't anything serious, just a pesky head cold, but until last night, I sounded like this, and it didn't seem like a good way to do a podcast. (laughs) And so I thought it would be best to uh, wait until I sounded a little bit less stuffed up, although not much, I guess. But uh, my delay in completing this McKenna series uh, about imagination may be causing some consternation out in podcast land. Uh, Andy O., one of my Facebook friends, wrote to say, Hi, Lorenzo. I've been listening to the latest McKenna series you're podcasting. They're some of my favorites so far. Can you tell me how many installments there will be in this series? Will they all be available before Christmas? The only reason I ask is that I would like to present them as a gift to a friend at Christmas. Well, Andy, uh, I have some good news for you. This is the next-to-last installment of this series, and I'll get the next one out this weekend if all goes according to plan. Uh, And I agree with you that uh, this series is one of the best. And uh, we have fellow slaughter Brian Pitkin to uh, thank for sending this series of recordings uh, to me to podcast. And additionally, I want to thank uh, a whole bunch of people who made donations to the salon over these past two weeks some of whom are also repeat donors to the salon. And these wonderful people are Ido H., John Michelle D., Mark C., Paul C., David H., and Allison Terry, who, you recall, has also transcribed several of the McKenna podcasts. Uh, And you can find those on our website, which you you can reach through psychedelicsalon.org. So thank you for everything, Allison, and uh, a huge thank you to Ido, John, Michelle, Mark, Paul, and David for your generosity and help in uh, keeping these podcasts alive on the net. Now, on to today's program, which is the next-to-last installment of a workshop that uh, Terrence McKenna held at the Esalen Institute here in California late in 1997. To be honest here, uh, I almost skipped this section of the workshop uh, due to my own personal prejudices. You see, uh, the topic is uh, Terence's time wave hypothesis, which I must admit I'm no fan of. To me, uh, it seems too much like a fortune-telling thing or uh, some of the less informed approaches to astrology that try to predict the future rather than simply to suggest what energy patterns are prevalent at any given time. The other thing that bothered me about it is... uh, that in one of the earlier lectures we heard uh, Terence give, he initially set the end date at 2011, only to adjust it later on. And, of course, the 2011 date is one that Carl Callaman also pursues, but uh, although he refuses to let anybody see his calculations that uh, led him to arrive at that date. But even though I didn't really uh, want to hear any more about the time wave, uh, I went ahead and previewed this part of the workshop and uh, discovered something new for me to think about in relation to this hypothesis. I'll save my comments about it until uh, after you hear this talk yourself, and then you'll be better able to uh, see where I'm coming from. So uh, now let's join Terrence McKenna and friends for a little ride on the time wave. Uh, So, uh, this theory has probably not stormed the intellectual battlements of Western civilization, 
be, for one reason, because it poses so fundamental a challenge. Science cannot swallow the time wave. You have to choose one or the other. The time wave is not a cult. It is not a cult. But it is not science as we have done it for the past 500 years, because it assumes that one of our primary intuitions is actually true, the intuition that every moment is unique. It treats that as the central starting point for an entirely new metaphysic of being. And so the smooth duration, the simple answer, the parsimonious good try has to be put aside. Now, why the I Ching? Because in the same way that Western culture um, evolved a maniacal obsession with matter that ends with uh, atomic fusion, sequencing of the DNA, uh, room temperature superconductors, <clears throat> Buckminster Fullerenes, and all that, in the same way that Western intellectual methods were relentlessly pushed toward uh, an understanding of matter, in, in the East, a different obsession held sway for cultural factors not needing to be discussed here. People were interested not in matter, but in time, the other great mystery given to us in this dimension, time. And if you're interested in time, you don't conquer time by building vast instrumentalities and seeking a primary particle and all that. The way you understand and investigate time is by moving inward into metabolism, uh, the human body is an, a, a knot in time. It is, an, it is a non-thermodynamic state of equilibrium maintained by the miracle of metabolism. Metabolism is a slow, controlled chemical burning of organic material, uh, a so subtle a form of burning that the energy is trapped in various membranes and cytochrome cascades and, and put to the work of organism. And if you imagine then, at some time thousands of years in the past, uh, people possessing techniques which today we would call yogic, but what they really are are simply probably what are now called stilling of the heart techniques. Techniques for suppressing gross bodily function. In other words, uh, noticeable breathing, noticeable heartbeat, noticeable pulse. Techniques for stilling all this. It turns out that as if this can be done, and it is persistently claimed that it can be done, as noise leaves the physiological circus, circuits and circuits, the mind falls inward into a world of interiorized phenomena 
for which we have no language but the language of idiots, because this is not our cultural obsession. So we say, well, it's a dream, it's hallucination, it's who knows, let's uh, see what's going on with the 11 o'clock news. But in other cultures, complex vocabularies were produced to study these states, vocabularies as complex as our scientific vocabularies. And in the same way that in the 19th century, Mendeleev and those people came to discern that all matter is produced out of the combination of a limited number of elements, and there were arguments about how much, how many, but it's generally assumed under 110, and that's generous, out of 110 basic elements, the entire world of material phenomenon emerges Similarly, in the inspection of time, it was realized that time, too, comes in flavors, if you will. Not 50,000, not 300 million, not four, not eight, but 64. And this probably has to do something with the cube root of four and certain things having to do with the dimensionality in time and space. I mean, why this number is a, is a reason for speculation. It's a number based, built into biology, too. There are 64 codons coding for the eight amino acids. This is no coincidence. It's something about the, the basic grammar of being itself arises around these numbers. Well, uh, they not only saw that uh, time is made of these elements, but they saw that they occurred in certain fixed patterns of recurrence at different levels, at different speeds, and that from the point of view of this I Ching philosophy, a given moment in being at some locus of space and time is a kind of interference pattern created by moving levels of, let us call them, influences. And these influences interpenetrate each other on many levels. And all of this can, in fact, be quantified and mathematicized and portrayed in uh, the universal language of mathematics. And that's what I've tried to do. I'm sorry this answer ran so long. But I, I want to make it seem reasonable to you that there are categories in time as well as in matter, and that the, if you can discern these categories, you can gain as powerful an intellectual understanding of time as we have uh, of matter. Now let me get back to how this thing is read, and then I want to move forward here. When the wave moves up, habit is increasing. When the wave moves dramatically down, novelty is increasing. And time on all scales is made out of a sense into habit, plunges into novelty, novelty troughs, and further a sense into habit. And you can feel these things in your own life, you know. When the luck is running with you, nothing can stop you. When the wave is against you, God help you. And this happens to empires. It happens to political careers. It happens to species. 
It happens to entire orders of biological life, a hundred million years of endless radiation into all kinds of niches across the planet. Then suddenly, a planetary cooling and a mass extinction, and uh, uh, the, the novel forms or disappear. But over long periods of time, as I said, habit is vanquished and novelty is concentrated. And that's part of the story, half of the story. The other half of the story is that this process of movement into deeper novelty is speeding up, always has been speeding up, goes faster and faster and faster. So if this is seven billion years, you can see back here things were deadly slow. Here life appears. Once life appears, the pace quickens. Once life leaves the ocean, at this scale, the thing is practically uh, a, a direct descent into novelty. Though when we blow this up, as we can do, we will see that what looks here like a smooth, straight shot into the lap of God turns out to be you know, the old, rugged path that we've followed for a long, long time. Every theory has a hard swallow. The, the hard swallow in ordinary science is the Big Bang. Notice that it's the limit test for credulity. If you can believe that the entire universe sprang from nothing in a single instant for no reason, what would you resist as a hypothesis? Uh, it's the limit case for improbability, as far as I can tell. And nevertheless, science says, you know, give us one free miracle, and we can then go from there and never ask the favor again. So apparently you get one free miracle in your system building. I prefer to locate my miracle at the end. And you may say, well, is that just arbitrary? Why December 21st, 2012? Well, uh, obviously, if the theory has any utility, if this idea of habit and novelty has any instructive value at all, then we should find novel events clustered in these troughs, and we should find periods of constipated recidivism on these upsweeps. So now we have two data fields with which to play. We have the formal and mathematically defined and utterly inflexible wave, and we have the vicissitudes of natural and human history. On the natural history level, uh, asteroid impacts, glaciations, extinctions, fluctuations in incidental incoming solar energy, cooling of the oceans, enormous volcanic eruptions, this sort of thing. In the human world, wars, revolutions, technological innovations, migrations of people, introductions of new technologies. Uh, and so the idea then is to take the mathematically defined wave 
and the admittedly messy data of natural and human (coughs) history and seek a best fit between them. And when you impartially get them lined up so that it seems that most major episodes of novelty that historians or people who care about these things agree on and most low points in the wave line up with each other, then you simply go to the end of the wave and look at the end point and it kicks out a date. And I did this and I will show you my correlations. As a big picture, I think this is pretty accurate to how most educated historians would view what has gone on on this planet in the last 6,000 years. It's telling us that 4500 B.C., a descent into novelty is underway, and it didn't start very far back here, Uh, quite a steep descent into novelty. And in fact, what we find here is Sumer, Ur, Chaldea, Babylon, Egypt. And so a series of civilizations, each leaping beyond the accomplishments of the other until we reach the pyramid-building phase of Egypt, the Old Kingdom. And then, right down here, there's a kind of uh, novelty trough. Egyptian civilization rages across here, and in fact, it does fulfill the intuition of theosophists and other people that Egypt achieved something that was not surpassed in novelty until early Roman times. In other words, clear all this happens, but you don't get this level of novelty until you get over here to about 220 BC. And I maintain technologically and so forth and so on, that's probably just about right. This upswing back into habit, the historical record is characterized by brutal civilizations. The Hittites, the Mitanni, imperial Assyria, you know, motorcycle gangs with chariots is what we're talking about here. If we were to blow this up, we would see that uh, there were some interesting plunges into novelty, phonetic alphabets, expansion of Phoenician trade routes, and so forth and so on. But the turning point is up here. And as far as Western history is concerned, what happens up here is Homer sings his song. And I maintain, symbolically and literally, that's what started it off. That's what set the last phase in motion. I had a professor, maybe I'm echoing his prejudice, but a philosophy professor in college, and he said, you want to know where it all went wrong? I'll tell you where it all went wrong. When the Greeks stopped being fishermen and pulled their boats up on the shore and started to talk philosophy, it all went wrong. Well, I don't know if it went wrong. It certainly went in a different direction. Homer sings his song, and it begins an almost unbroken cascade into modernity.
So I want to talk about this one for a minute because there is an aspect of this theory that I find very appealing that I haven't touched on yet, which is if you've been t paying attention, you've noticed that screens repeat themselves. Uh, remember I showed you a screen where I said at the top of a certain mountain, Homer sang his song? This is that same shape, but we're now not looking at thousands of years, we're only looking at 52 years. Well, what's the deal? Well, because this thing is a fractal, it has like in uh, 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 built into it automatic resonances. So uh, it, it gives you a very rich data field to work with. Uh, if this is a span of time from 1944 to 1996, it on another level is a span of time from roughly late Egyptian time to the Umayyad Caliphate with Homer singing his song up here. On the short scale, the 52-year scale, this is 1967. Now, these two things are in a, a uh, according to this theory, in a, in a situation of resonance or geometrical relationship to each other. Is there anything about the world of Homer that is like the world of 1967? And I maintain, yes, a, a tendency to easy lifestyles, loose shoes, and sophomoric philosophy. Uh, characterized both eras, and you, you see, it's a it's a way of explaining such transient phenomena as fads and fashions. Why are we suddenly putting lion claws on on the legs of our bathtubs? Well, because we're passing through a period of resonance when that was done in the past. In other words, the uh, orthodox theories of history and time would tell you that the most important moment shaping this moment is the moment which just preceded this moment. It was, as it were, the conduit for the wave of causal necessity to arrive at this moment. But I'm saying something different. I'm saying that every moment in time is an interference pattern made by other moments in time that are related to each other, not through linear seriality, but through this much more complex schema of relations. So, you know, if you suddenly walk into a room and there's a, a, a heavy hit of black granite inverted corners and silver shadowing, it's a Jugendstil resonance. And I live in a kind of waking hallucination. Uh, I have a little aphorism which covers this. It's Rome falls nine times an hour. It falls more than that and less than that, but let's say it falls nine times an hour. Well, then your job is to notice every time it falls. In other words, what we think of as our random musings and our personal mental furniture is in fact 
our subconscious awareness of these systems of temporal resonance operating around us. So, you know, as I look out at a crowd like this, if I let myself go, you know, I notice that Kant is sleeping in the corner and that Madame Lafarge seems to have just come in from the baths and taken her seat. And uh, Cleopatra is uh, headed for the John and so forth and so on. How real is this? Mm, who knows? You know, uh, I mean, it's a, it's a matter of discernment, yes. Well, what I would say, I mean, first of all, let's let's get a little more honest here. There's a lot of argument about where Homer actually sang his song. We can only really pinpoint it to within about 150 years. It's up here somewhere. Now, if I could zero in on this, but 1967 is here. 1968 is just over the top. The first moon flight is there. Well, now suddenly we have the Homeric resonance. Uh, what is Homer but a story of noble men on a long and far voyage and eventually the homeward return and then the heroics of that echoes over the centuries. And probably the only heroic episode of the 20th century that's unsullied by hypola and manipulation and so forth is the flight to the moon. I mean, that was pretty amazing. You know, I don't care about the politics or any of the rest of it. I mean, what it took to do that, you notice we're not doing it. We don't have the gumption, the technology, or the national focus to do that. Uh, and in a sense, so it, I take the moon flight to be, in a sense, the capstone of modernism. I, I consider postmodern time to begin after that. I mean, what was the 70s but a whining reprise of the 60s? Uh, and then everything else has followed from that, yeah. Shouldn't it then be at a novelty I myself am more provisional. I will advocate this, but I'm aware more, I think, than many in my audience how unlikely this is. I'm basically a devil's advocate because I'm fascinated with the fact that I thought this up and this is not my style. It's hard for you to believe that because I've been now talking about it since 1971. So it has become me in a sense, but it isn't me. This is not how I think. This is not how I ever thought. I had to be led by the hand. I'm sloppier than this. I'm not precise. This was told to me. And it's eerie. It's turned my life to science fiction because I don't know what this is all about. I don't know why I'm here talking about this. I don't know why you're here listening to it. Uh, and I'm puzzled that outside this room, the world is moving towards not this theory, but these kinds of conclusions. Is it the millennium? 
Well, this isn't about the millennium. This says forget the millennium. It's a complete waste of time, a speed bump on the way to the real event. Uh, I've tried to think of rational explanations for why, why this theory. And I've had to go pretty far afield. Here's a rational explanation. Suppose the millennium is so psychically charged that there's a danger of mass hysteria of some sort, mass suicides or something like that. Perhaps the collective unconscious senses this, and my mission is to smear the expectation. In other words, what this does is it says, don't get excited about the millennium. And then once the millennium is passed, people will say, well, and don't worry about McKenna either. In other words, it's a way of cheating you past the millennium. If there weren't people running around saying 2012, 2010, 28, 26, 2004, there would be so much energy concentrated on the millennium that there might be various forms of mass hysteria. I mean, I don't know, but it's, it's a more reasonable explanation than that the secret of universal temporal architectonics has been handed over to an Irishman by a mushroom for the edification <laughs> of mankind. I mean, that is too much. I'm, I'm amazed that, uh, because you see, it's so precise. And I, I don't know if you can tell from what I've said this evening, but it's very clear to me that it's not about being right some of the time. If it fails once, it fails completely. There's no wiggle room. That's why it's so interesting to try to trap it. This is not something where if we get seven out of ten, we're going to keep preaching. This thing must be right 10,000 times out of 10,000 tries. And as I offer it to you and to other people, because I think smarter people than me ought to be able to destroy it. You know, my, I remember when I talked about how science gets points for, you get points for proving you're wrong? If I could prove this was bunk, I would get a lot of points. If anybody could prove it was wrong, absolutely wrong, but it's amazingly slippery. So slippery, in fact, that it's almost like a living thing just when you think you've pushed it into a corner that it can't escape from, you know, you get a Martian meteorite full of fossils right in your lap. So we're struggling to say, you know, is this a message? Is this meaning or is this self-generated hallucination? Uh, I don't know. I offer it as part of this weekend on imagination because this is my best trick in the imagination. My little theory of evolution is no more than a conversational rap. How would it be if? This is considerably different because it rests on a mathematical 
foundation. And don't forget, it does come genuinely from the I Ching. So we have this peculiar three-pronged situation. We have a pattern in the King Wen sequence taken by an Irishman and contorted into a mathematical wave which gives a prediction for the apotheosis of the world which matches the assumptions of a vanished Mesoamerican civilization. Huh? <laughs> Why? Where does it end? Well, this question, when I calculate my own personal wave, first of all, I'm, I do entertain the idea that we may each have our own time wave, uh, sort of following the model of astrology. But I'm aware, and I'm sure those of you who are professional astrologers are also aware, that the natal horoscope is essentially a commercial con. In other words, astrology, the royal art of astrology, was invented to guide the destiny of peoples and, and kings, pharaohs and courts. But in the late Roman period, the world's first yuppies, came into being, or the, one of the world's first instances of yuppies, and they thought, well, the emperor has his horoscope cast. Am I less than the emperor? I, too, should have my horoscope cast. And enterprising Hellenistic astronomers were only too pleased to oblige. Uh, Otto Neugebauer published a wonderful book of the natal horoscopes of rich Athenian and Roman citizens. And it, to some degree, I think it is a, it is a slight uh, distortion of astrology for astrological purposes. Nevertheless, in terms of the time wave, a reasonable question would be, well, how, if this is true, then how come I can have a bad day while you're having a good day? In other words, if novelty ebbs and flows according to this schedule, shouldn't we all be having good days and bad days together? And obviously we don't. So what then must be happening is that we are on different places in the wave system. And then if that's true, then in a sense, this huge wave could be thought of as the summation of all the little waves which comprise it. It's perfectly obvious. Let's say this were a huge scale of time, several thousand years. Well, then this might be a, a period of time as long as an entire lifetime. But not everybody alive in the world at that time would experience their life as an uninterrupted plunge into novelty. No. So um, a, a large percentage of people might. There is this phenomenon of the zeitgeist, you know, and to the degree that we participate in our time, we, our life is in concert with the, the larger wave. Uh, this wave has uh, durations of cycles in it, and one of the cycles, the cycle we're living through now, stretches from 1945 
to 2012. It actually stretches from the Hiroshima bomb blast to the, the, summer, the winter solstice of 2012. Well, I was born 18 months after that event. So if I have a personal time wave, it will end 18 months after the end of this wave. How can that be when this wave seems to dictate the end of all lesser waves? Another mystery uh, to be unraveled by traversing the territory. Yeah. Well, I don't know what the time wave is, is portraying. I mean, in other words, novelty how is it transmitted? How is it, is it detectable? Can we build a meter other than this time wave? Could we build a parallel technology which would confirm the existence of this thing? You know, what can you do with novelty? The electromagnetic field, it turned out, you know, you can transmit information, light cities, smelt metal, if you know how to do the trick. What you could do with this, uh, I'm not sure. You see, if the last cycle from 1945 to 2012 is real, then in a sense, all larger cycles are compacted into it. In a sense, from 1945 to 2012, we're reliving the entire history of the world. If that's true, then we have reached roughly 1000 AD. That means that between now and 2012, we must traverse uh, a, uh, I don't even have the words for it, a domain of cultural change equivalent to the domain we traversed between 1000 AD and the present. In other words, a th slightly more than a thousand years of resonances have to be compacted into the next 16 years. Consequently, there's this feeling of things moving faster and faster. In a universe which was actually built on this kind of architecture, imagine this, a universe that actually had this kind of closure, where it was a series of, uh, where each time cycle was 164th the size of the one that preceded it. Before a universe of that structure reached the domain of Planck's constant, 6.55 times 10 to the minus 25 erg seconds, it would undergo half of its unfolding into existence in the last hour and 35 minutes before the crunch. In other words, if this is the kind of universe that we're living in, half of the unfoldment into novelty will occur in the last day of the existence. That's how huge these rates of acceleration are. So when people ask the question, what will happen in 2012, they're asking you to see around the corner nine times. It can't be done. Language fails. Apparently, as far as I can tell, what novelty, what will happen as novelty asymptotically increases in the final months, hours, minutes, milliseconds, is boundaries will dissolve. All boundaries, they're already dissolving. We see the nation state dissolving. 
but wait till, to, wait till the atomic field dissolves. Uh, everything is apparently crunching together in some kind of meltdown. It's the equivalent of a black hole, but it's not a gravitational collapse. It's a novelty collapse. We are collapsing into a black hole of novelty. And I've tried to imagine uh, how could this happen? What could happen without uh, God's direct intervention, A, and B, fleets of extraterrestrial starships appearing over every city on the planet? In other words, is there anything that we could self-generate that would fulfill this kind of a scenario? And it turns out I found at least one answer, which is time travel. If, in fact, what happens in 2012 is that we begin the conquest of this previously unscratched dimension called time, then it is perfectly reasonable that a linear depiction of the ebb and flow of novelty would stop at a certain point because once time becomes nonlinear, you can't portray it on a Cartesian graph anymore. You need a higher dimensional matrix. It starts coming at you out of the screen. The novelty overflows the dimensional container you've built for it. Uh, interestingly, when I had this idea 15 years ago, there was no idea in greater contempt in the scientific journals. I mean, time travel, ha ha ha, the grandfather paradox, this and that and the other thing. Now it's a perfectly respectable thing to discuss. There are schemes for time travel on the books that would work. It would require some godlike technologies. I mean, in other words, you have to be able to spin a cylinder that is the size of Jupiter, nine-tenths the speed of light. But if you can spin such a cylinder at such a speed and travel along its horizontal axis, you will, in fact, be moved backward through time. Everybody agrees on this. They just say you can't do it. Whoa, hell, where have we heard that before? We can't do it. But yes, if you can think of it, you can do it. And if there's a crude brute force way to do it, then there's a subtle, tricky, easy way to do it that comes along a little bit later. I mean, the vacuum tube was not the end of that line of development. And uh, what we're talking about here is a vacuum tube version of a time machine. Uh, and and uh, a time machine may not be what we think it is. You know, the future is not like the past, except that it hasn't happened. If you were to suddenly find yourself in the future, it's a vector storm of unrealized possibilities. You've never seen an unrealized possibility. All you've ever seen are realized possibilities, and you don't know what an unrealized possibility would look like. There are a lot more of them than there are realized possibilities, and they fill the space called the future. If you suddenly found yourself in the future, you wouldn't even recognize it as that. You just think you've gone mad, I think. So, uh, uh, I, I,
I, I don't know, I should wrap this up, but the basic notion is this is what I learned from psychedelics. Uh, this is my show and tell. Uh, it's an indulgence of my ego to do this because most of what I tell you, you could learn somewhere else. I just have read the books and can regurgitate this stuff point you toward the plants, lead you through the philosophical issues, talk about the medical stuff. It's not particularly flashy. It's just a mental shortcut for you. This is original, and nobody has ever tried to wrest it from my grasp. That's how original it is. Nobody else wants the hideous responsibility of defending this particular piece of intellectual baggage. Uh, why I I like it is uh, I believe that the the idea which is the most fun is probably closest to the truth and I find this idea to be absolutely uh, uh, delightful it also has a kind of weird uh, completedness about it even though nobody has made any contribution to this theory but me. In other words, I thought it up, top to bottom, start to finish. It doesn't feel to me like a human being could do that. It feels to me like it would take that, that this is the product of an entire civilization. It must have taken hundreds of years. Many workers spread out in space and time. I can tell it. And I was told it, that's how I know it. But no single individual, and certainly not myself, could have dreamed this up from scratch. Yeah. You mean before I had the whole thing? Yeah. From 1971 to 75. Uh, and, and it was interesting, and this I cannot ever share with anybody else, you'll just have to believe me. But the way it was revealed was very odd because it never let me see where I was going. I couldn't figure out what I was doing. I mean, it said, go buy graph paper. Go get your I Ching. Look at the King Wen sequence. Draft, graph the first order of difference. And at I would try and guess, what are we doing? Are we discovering an ancient Chinese calendar? Are we, what, uh, why are we doing this? It said, no, no, don't worry about that. Just keep, you know, next step. And it, it, it always hid from me where I was headed. It still hides from me where I'm headed. Uh, you know, and the, the software has been written, the, controversy rages on the internet. I even now have critics. That's good. That shows that it is moving out of the realm of private Idaho into the realm of debatable cultural artifact. Uh, and I think that if it's true or if it has a part of the truth, we will know before 2012. In other words, a lot of people observed, not a lot, but a few hundred maniacs observed this prediction about 1996. 
and then watched the ensuing debate, my critics, my defense, their response, so forth and so on. So it's being watched, and the meme spreads, and apparently will be helped by things like simply where we are in relationship to the calendar, uh, simply because we're approaching a millennial turn the producers of nitwit TV shows want to talk to me. They say, I understand you have a way of predicting uh, the future given to you by UFOs, I heard. Uh, we, we want to put you on the air. Well, mm-hmm. you know, I'm not sure uh, about the wisdom of all of this, but I figure, you know, let the meme fight for its life in the, uh, in the jungle of competing models of reality. When I pull back from the specificity and the fact that I invented it, that's my biggest problem. If I hadn't invented this, if I just heard that somebody invented it and this is what it was, I think I would find it very interesting. But since I know the inventor very well, I'm very prone to doubt the thing. I mean, this is not a guy you would want to put a lot of pressure on. Um, so, uh, I, I don't know. I'm puzzled. And I offer it as an unsolved puzzle. I preached here earlier that you mustn't seek closure. And so I don't with this. If it's a communication... It's a very curious communication. If it is non-communication, it's even more curious. If it's a delusion, why is it so mathematical for- mathematically formal? If I'm pathological, why aren't there attendant sequelae? Why just this very defined thing? Uh, the whole thing smacks of the impossible. It's even pushed me toward the idea that maybe this is not actually a reality. We're trapped, or I'm trapped, I don't know if you're trapped, but we're in some kind of piece of fiction. It's like a Philip K. Dick deal, you know? We're in some kind of simulacrum, and the clue to the fact that it's a simulacrum is this impossible idea. And so the point of the idea is not to believe it, but to use it as a wedge to fight our way out of this labyrinth and back to whatever reality we were in before we fell into this <laughs> situation. Something like that. Anyway, I have the feeling that I'm blathering and spinning my wheels. Are there any, is there some final question that brings this all to a, yes. Ah, yeah, that is an interesting question. Like people say, well now, are you, is this some kind of permission for irresponsibility? Are you saying that the world is going to transform itself no matter what happens? I'm enough of an old political activist to sense the anguish behind that question because I don't want to say Yes, don't worry about the Palestinians, don't worry about the Bangladeshis, it's a done deal, it's all fine, you can take your eye off the ball and your foot off the pedal. I, that seems crazy to me. 
to give advice like that. And yet this thing seems to be saying, it is a done deal, it's going to be fine, it's going to arrive on schedule, under budget, you don't have to <laughs> preach it, you don't have to worry about it. And so then apparently what, where it lies is that it is a done deal, but how the deal is done is not a done deal. That there will be a deal is sealed. That is written into the laws of physics, if this is correct. No escape from the transcendence. But how we present ourselves to it is our contribution. It does not say what will happen. It simply says where the novelty will cluster, and apparently it is still uh, open to uh, what happens is still a matter of human decision and of the unfolding of causal necessity. So in a sense it's saying there is a safety net under you, but you sh still should make an effort not to fall. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I hear what you're saying. Yes, a, a, a strange thing about the Mayan calendar is it begins in, uh, I believe, 3135 B.C. and it ends in 2012. The Mayan civilization began, as far as anybody can tell, around 300 B.C. and was a done deal by 790 A.D. So here was a culture who, that lived by a calendar that seemed to have no relationship to its own cultural origins or ends. That's odd. I mean, that's not how people do a calendar. The other the weird thing about the Mayan calendar is it begins on a slow Thursday in August. It, in other words, it doesn't begin at a solstice. It doesn't begin at an equinox. It doesn't begin with a special astrological configuration in the sky. It begins on nothing burger day <laughs> in 3135 B.C. Well, but it runs forward to a winter solstice and ends precisely on a winter solstice. Whoever heard of a calendar that was formed by calculating backward from a point thousands of years in the future? What kind of squirrely culture would do that? And the answer is, we don't know. But yes, this is a great puzzle that the, the Mayans seem weirdly disconnected from their own calendar. Oh yeah, there is the amazing, the reason the Maya are so fascinating is because they had astronomy, they had politics, poetry, architecture, and they don't owe anything to Greece or Egypt or Sumeria or Babylon or Ur or Chaldea. They thought it up themselves. They did it themselves. They met problem after problem after problem and solved them in astonishingly unique ways. And, you know, it's just a matter of cultural accident. When Cortez sailed into the Bay of Campeche 
the difference between medieval Spanish civilization and the civilization of the Aztecs in terms of technological level and understanding, they were practically on a par. I mean, the Spanish had no antibiotics, they had no advanced weaponry, no advanced communication, they had better ships, <coughs> but had the, had the voyage not been done that way, 150 years later, the Aztecs might have landed on the coast of Spain and claimed it for a Montezuma's successor. That's how nearly in parallel they were. But then, of course, the bifurcation was tremendous. One civilization wiped out, and the other, through the looting of the former, finances its way into modern science. And 500 years later, we have atom bombs and antibiotics and DNA sequencing. Anyway, that's it for this evening. Thank you for your attention and your indulgence. I'm very grateful to you. You're listening to The Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. Okay, so here's my current take on the time wave. But if you're hearing this after uh, the end of the year 2009, I may have changed my mind once again. And I'm only going to give you uh, the headline for now. And that is the thought that uh, maybe the 2012 date is simply where the downward plunge of novelty came to the end of the graph paper we've been using. I'd like to see what happens when the end date is pushed out a few more millennia. Will it continue downward uh, as it has so far, or will it eventually go up for a few eons? What I'm saying is that uh, while I think there may be some uses for the time wave theory, it may be more along the lines of uh, consolidating it with astrology or something like that rather than to be used as a predictor of potential doom and gloom. So I'm hoping that uh, sometime in early 2013, once things uh, return for whatever is passing as normal at the moment, that uh, work will begin in earnest to untangle the mystery of the McKenna time wave hypothesis. You know, it was uh, kind of interesting to me uh, when Terrence said he thought that the U.S. moon flight was the capstone of modernism. That took place in July of 1969, and uh, for many years I've been saying that I thought that was the peak of the American empire. Well, here's another thing that happened right around that time. At least according to Wikipedia, it was uh, also in 1969 that President Richard the Dick Nixon first used the term war on drugs. Those were uh, some pivotal times, 1967 through 1969, and... uh, the shape of the time wave for the next 12 months is uh, quite similar to the wave that covered those two years. Interesting, huh? And if you've read Richard Tarnas's excellent book, Cosmos and Psyche, then you probably thought about it when Terence was talking about the similarity of the shape of the time wave between 1944 and 1996 with that of the shape of the time wave from the late Egyptian time to the Umayyad Caliphate, and uh, then he asked the question, is there anything about the world of Homer that is like the world of 1967? Now, if you've read Tarnas, you know that he uses astrological configurations that affect entire generations to map over the uh, ebb and flow of human history. And uh, I guess here's a spoiler alert if you haven't uh, read Tarnas's book, but uh, he says that the times that we are currently in 
our uh, closest, uh, at least astrologically, to the year 1500. So uh, that's your assignment for the week. Read a little history and uh, figure out how today reflects those times. And if you're up to it, uh, why not leave your opinion on our Skype voicemail, which you can reach through our Skype number, which is the word Psychedelic Salon, all one word, all lowercase. And here's another idea. Why don't you try to slide the time wave forward so that the ending point is thousands or even hundreds of thousands of years into the future? And uh, see if it'll line up at important points uh, just as Terrence did when he ended it at 2012. Uh, Terrence said that what he did was to take the two data sets and find the best fit between them. Well, maybe he got the best fit wrong. Maybe there's a better best fit that uh, has its end date uh, 20,000 years in the future. I messed around with this uh, a little myself and discovered that I could find a lot of time wave matches with historical and uh, geographical events in the past by uh, just sliding it forward past its uh, 2012 endpoint. So uh, maybe it's time to reset the time wave and uh, start both it and the Mayan calendar over again. Another interesting thing to do might be to consider the fractal nature of both the time wave and of history itself. For example, historians argue among themselves that the Roman Empire fell sometime between the years 350 and 1000. And if you look at the time wave, it more or less matches that period if you consider the end of the Roman Empire to be a descent into novelty. Of course, uh, that could be argued as well, I guess. Now, if history repeats itself, or is perhaps fractal, then uh, there may be some uh, other interesting correlations there. But for me, all of this is a little too much like divination of some kind. Remember, uh, early on in his talk, Terence went on at length that each moment is unique. And if that's so, uh, then I don't see how history of necessity has to repeat itself. Unless, uh, of course, we humans keep on making the same mistakes over and over without ever learning from them. And, uh, by the way, if you want to see the time wave for yourself and uh, play around with it a little bit, you can uh, find an interactive version of the time wave uh, calculator at timewave2012.com slash tools slash calculator. And I'll post a link to that along with the uh, program notes for today's podcast. Now, just a couple more things before I sign off for today. And uh, the first is to give a shout-out to our fellow saloners in and around Nelson, Canada. Just before I came down with my cold, I had a great conversation with Dustin Cantwell on his Fane of the Cosmos radio program on Kootenai Co-op Radio. And uh, his program airs from 10 to 12 on Sunday nights and uh, streams over the net. So if you're up late on a Sunday night and want a little company, just uh, surf over to 93.5 in Nelson, Canada, and uh, join Dustin and friends. And I I think there's also a podcast of some of his shows. Uh, Anyway, I send warm and sunshiny greetings to you saloners up in Canada from uh, the beaches down here in Southern California. Actually, even though there's more stuff I'd like to cover right now, I guess I'd better cut this off because I'm getting stuffed up again and uh, at least get this much out for today. Hopefully I'll be able to get the last part of this workshop out to you uh, in the next few days. Well, so uh, I'll close today's podcast again by reminding you that this and most of the podcasts from the Psychedelic Salon are freely available for you to use in your own audio projects under the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike 3.0 license. And if you have any questions about that, just uh, click the Creative Commons link at the bottom of the Psychedelic Salon webpage 
which you can find at psychedelicsalon.org. And uh, if you're interested in the philosophy behind the Psychedelic Salon, you can hear all about it in my novel, The Genesis Generation, which is available as an audiobook that you can download at genesisgeneration.us. And uh, I also want to add a huge thank you to the 16 kind souls who purchased a copy of The Genesis Generation last month. Your support means an awful lot to me. And for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends.